This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Economists. I'm Peter Martin. And I'm Gigi Foster. Hello. Gigi, there's a week to go. A million of us have already voted. Uh, We've had the debate. And now, in our special series, dealing with election issues on The Economists, we deal with what, for many, is probably the biggest of them all. In fact, it may well be the reason many of those people have voted without waiting. They've made up their mind. Yes, it's climate change. But for the rest of us, I think there's 16 million uh, enrolled uh, who still have to vote. It's probably a good idea to get some kind of clarity on questions such as the carbon tax, the national energy guarantee, am I going to have to buy an electric car, those sort of things. Can we take it as read first, Gigi, that we need to cut carbon emissions? That'll save time. (laughs) And then then look at the, the cheapest way of doing it. Well, anytime you you change what you've been doing in response to some kind of intervention, a tax or a regulation, there is a cost. I mean, it's almost definitional. You were doing previously what you thought was best or most profitable with your resources, your money, your time, and then a tax or a regulation is imposed and it pushes you away from that best choice. An economist. So almost whatever you're doing before is good. That's the way. Well, it's it's basically in response to the local signals that you were receiving, and so you you know your behavior, your choices are distorted by any kind of intervention. And we economists are painfully aware of those kinds of distortionary costs, which is why when we do recommend new taxes or new regulations, we do so in settings where either we think that choices aren't going to be distorted too much, or we think that the benefits to the whole society of getting you to change your behavior by by imposing that tax or regulation on you is going to be really big. So that's the case with sin taxes, for example, on cigarettes. That's certainly the case when it comes to pollution. We economists do not like interfering, but pollution's different. Pollution is, if you like, um, getting someone to pay for the damage they do. I want to read you an extract from the fairly new biography of William McMahon. Gigi, you were not in Australia at the time, barely born. He was arguably our worst prime minister. (laughs) Universal agreement over Sir William McMahon. But here's a cabinet decision his government made in the early 70s. That was when uh, Carol King released Tapestry, George Harrison released All Things Must Pass. It was a long time ago. The government adopted the OECD, Organisation of Economic Cooperation and Development, principle of the polluter pays. This was a cabinet decision in Australia quote, where the costs of pollution control are recognised as part of the costs of production. That was 50 years ago. Don't you think it's odd that today we're still talking about making someone who pollutes a river pay for the damage they do downstream or someone who puts carbon dioxide into the air in big quantities, not paying for the damage they're doing to everyone else. Now, look, the idea of pollution taxes has obviously been around for a long time, and I think we're still talking about it because it's a good idea. I mean, taxes on pollution, like taxes on tobacco or alcohol, gambling, etc., they aim to correct what economists call externalities. Externalities are effects of an activity, whether positive or negative effects, on other people not directly involved in that activity. So, for example, the secondhand smoker or the spouse who's harmed by your gambling or your drinking, or the children who will face a worse climate in 40 years 
because of what we adults choose to do today. So taxing activities that have externalities makes it more expensive to do those activities, and that means that those taxes can produce the double dividends mentioned by Bob Roenig a few programs back. We both reduce or make the perpetrator pay for damage, and we also raise money. It's a double win, which makes you think that Labor would want to be shouting from the rooftops about uh, what it's proposing. It wants to cut emissions by 45% on 2005 levels uh, by 2030 and cut them to zero by the middle of the century. Instead, though, its response to criticisms has been sort of zen. Here's Bill Shorten at the Labor launch on Sunday. But I promise Australians, and I promise all of those Australians who want action on climate change, and I promise the young people in particular, but all Australians, Labor will stand its ground. No retreat on real action on climate change. We will stand our ground. We will fight hard. We will defy the pseudoscience and the scare campaigns. Gigi, if he wanted to, he could talk about cost. But oh, yeah. he doesn't want to get into it. Well, no. I mean, it's because that's not very popular. It's, it's much more vote-winning to talk about, you know, ideological fervor in regard to preserving the environment. But the reality is it's very uncertain. It's an uncertain world. What's going to happen in 20 or 50 or 100 years? And so it's unclear what the right policy interventions are today, given all the different trade-offs that, you know, we face. The... Costs, to the extent that they have been analysed, have been analysed by, among other people, the economic modeller, Dr Brian Fisher. The government keeps quoting him as the former head of the Bureau of Agricultural Economics. When he did the numbers, he did them earlier and they were big, when he did them on what Labor was actually proposing a week or two ago, he came up with a figure I'd have to say I find small. It's $53 billion in lost economic growth per year. Now, Gigi, the Australian economy each year grows by $2 trillion. By my reckoning, that cost is about nine days' worth of economic growth. Mm. So each year we, we get to the standard of wealth we would have got to nine years later. And incidentally, he, he says the coalition's policy, which is configured differently, will have about the same sort of cost. And these are really costs associated with cutting emissions. I want to just emphasize there are plenty of other things we could do today to help the environment. Cutting emissions is arguably the easiest or the, the most obvious, but, you know, things like reducing, you know, water use or reducing reliance on plastics or other things like this certainly are also activity adjustments that we can use economic tools to, uh, to encourage. But certainly in terms of these costs, we don't have a great, you know, sort of centralized consensus on what those costs are going to be. So that's what we're looking at today in the program. What is the least cost way of cutting emissions? What's the least disruptive or distortionary way of cutting emissions? And whether cutting emissions maybe presents opportunities for Australia and, and how we're going to preserve our ability to you know, keep the lights on and continue to use energy reliably while we're getting there. And we have to, of course, offset that against the cost of not acting. Which is not obvious, right? Because of this uncertainty in climate projections. So climate, you know, may change in, in radically different ways, depending on the projection. We're going so far out that really people have a lot of uncertainty. And also our economy is only 2.1% of the world economy and, and many other countries post similar numbers. So what that means is that any one country could do nothing to clean things up, so, to suffer no cost in the short run, and then still see the benefit if everybody else cleans things up and, and in 50 years, things are better. It sounds good, apart from the obvious problem. 
<laughs> Hold that thought for now. You're listening to The Economists on RN with Gigi Foster and me, Peter Martin. The economics of action on climate change, one of the most important election issues. By the way, ABC Vote Compass finds that for Labor and Greens voters, it's the most important issue by far. For coalition voters, it comes second, second only to the economy. <laughs> Paul Burke is our guest today. Paul is an associate professor at the ANU Crawford School, one of Australia's leading experts on the economics of energy, transport, the environment, and someone with hands-on experience in guiding Australia's energy transformation. Hello, Paul. Hi, JJ. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on the program. So can we first ask you, what's the least cost means of cutting carbon emissions, assuming that that's the thing we want to achieve? Is it regulations? So, you know, a law that says thou shalt cut thou thy pollution by this much, or is it a tax on pollution, or is it an emissions trading scheme, which our listeners may need to have explained a little bit? Because no one understands it. <laughs> I understand it, but... <laughs> oh, you're right. You're well done. Well, one thing that almost all economists agree on is that the cheapest way to achieve an emissions reduction target is via a price on carbon. Mm -hmm. A price on carbon incentivizes low-cost emissions reductions across the whole economy. In simple terms, if you can reduce emissions at a cheaper price than the price that you'd have to pay for emitting, then you'd go ahead and make those emissions reductions. And emissions price can come in via either a carbon tax or an emissions trading scheme. By the way, why shouldn't you just regulate? Why shouldn't well, you just say, all right, cut them by 20% this year, another 5% next year, and so on? Sometimes regulation makes sense, but as a general tool, it's pretty clunky. Some companies are much better positioned to reduce emissions into the future. And, and others would find it very, very hard. Precisely. Yeah, so if you regulate them all in the same way, hmm. uh, it can be really costly. So this is preferential voting, Paul. We've already ruled out regulation. What's your preference between the next two? That's a tax and an emissions trading scheme. The key thing is a price on carbon. The next step, exactly, tax or emissions trading scheme. Emissions trading scheme means, in its basic form, the government sets a cap, total a number, number of emissions throughout, that are allowed, throughout the covered sectors under the scheme, divides the cap into permits. To emit, you need a permit. The permits are valuable. They'll have a price. So if you're emitting, you're, you're paying a price for it. Most economists think that one or the other, go for one or the other, don't to go for neither. I personally think that a carbon tax is the way to go. Um, I use the saying tax and relax. It's a simpler instrument. It doesn't involve the trading component. And it's broadly popular overseas. For example, in the US recently, thousands of economists signed a statement calling for a carbon tax, not an emissions trading scheme. So let me just ask actually about that, because the, the advantage I've always thought of uh, an emissions trading scheme having is that you're setting the quantity of pollution that you're going to accept in advance, right? So you have direct control as a policymaker over that quantity. And if we are trying to reduce emissions by a certain target, then that instrument seems to suit that objective. Whereas with the tax, you have to kind of estimate how much the tax is going to distort behavior in order to work out how much you know, emissions are going to reduce by when you implement the tax. That's precisely right. That's the main benefit of an emissions trading scheme. Mm. You have more control over the quantity. The quantity gets locked in by the cap chosen for the scheme. But you the feel... Second the second advantage is it doesn't have the word tax in its name. <laughs> but you feel but, confident that the taxes... We know enough about how tax is going to influence behaviour that it's better to go for a tax as well. Well, either approach, again, can be followed. And an emissions trading scheme does work well and it does provide more quantity certainty. But a tax, it's simpler. It can be run by the Australian Taxation Office. If the emissions aren't going down quickly enough, the tax rate could be increased. 
Uh, so it does have some nice advantages. It's simpler than emissions than an emissions trading scheme. Guess who agrees with you, Paul? Or I have to say, probably ag- quite a few people. <laughs> I'll have to say agreed with you because this man's uh, self-described weather vane. But uh, Tony Abbott, hmm. back in two thousand and nine, uh, when he was not yet uh, prime minister. Here he is giving his response as to what he would prefer when he was leader of the opposition. I also think that if you want to put a price on carbon, why not just do it with a simple tax? Uh, why not uh, uh, ask a motorist to pay more? Uh, why not ask electricity consumers to pay more? Uh, and then at the end of the year, you can take your invoices to the tax office and get a rebate of the carbon tax you've paid. It would be burdensome, all taxes are burdensome, uh, but it would certainly um, change the price of carbon, raise the price of carbon, uh, without uh, increasing in any way the overall tax burden. What he, what he was saying there when he was uh, promoting his book, Battle Lines, is um, you can uh, tax carbon emissions, uh, 250 biggest emitters are what we, we look at here. And then you can uh, use the money, as indeed the Gillard government did, to give back to people. Gillard gave it back uh, in tax cuts and so on, so that people are no worse off, but uh, carbon emissions are worse off. Anyway, that was, uh, shall we say, in the past. Can we look at bo- what both parties are proposing? What has the coalition done? Well, Australia did have a carbon pricing scheme for two years under the Labor government. The coalition came in and removed that scheme uh, and its main approach has been a subsidy-based approach called direct action. They set up a fund, $2.55 billion initially, and they've just committed $2 billion more for it, to pay for individual projects across the economy to reduce emissions. And the idea is instead of taxing you for polluting, we pay you not to pollute or even not to pollute in the future. That sounds expensive. That, <laughs> that sounds expensive in terms of a, a mechanism to get large emissions reductions. That's a lot of money. That Why is it difficult spend. to get large reductions? Simply because of the financial expense? Well, to get large reductions, you need to put a big budget into it. So, so far, the budget has been quite small. And there are quite a few problems with this type of approach. When you buy a coffee, you get a coffee, you know what it is. When you buy an emissions reduction, the quality is not always so certain. In particular, they're subject to a process called adverse selection. So some of the projects which are being funded under this scheme are likely to be activities that would have happened anyway. They're called anyway projects. I know a guy who's uh-huh. being paid not to have <laughs> fires on his property. Uh, some of the projects are, are good ones. But, um, for example, quite a bit of money has been spent on avoided deforestation projects, mm. which is paying people to not cut their trees. Are they actually leading to lower emissions? Some of the projects are, but others probably the trees wouldn't have been cut anyway and those emissions reductions aren't genuine Or ones. they might even use the payments to cut down other trees. That's called leakage. That's right. Mm. That's another issue. So is this because we're basically not using a market mechanism in, in this scheme? It's basically just these handouts which are not really well, targeted. There is a market element to it though, right? Because it's uh, tender for... Uh projects. Yeah, it is a market-based mechanism and there's a reverse auction process. Uh So projects bid in and they they say what price they need and the cheapest projects are chosen and funded under the scheme. The problem, of course, though, is if they're cheap projects, what are you getting for your money? Well, and you're also monitoring all of that, right? It's not running through a traditional market. You're kind of relying on these bids being accurate in terms of the cost. Whereas if you have a, a tax or something, then the you know the company is just faced with that and then decides at the coalface what to do without having any reporting to the government required. That's exactly right. Under 
the current approach, the decision about which emissions reductions to, should go ahead is made in Canberra, mm-hmm. is made by the regulator. What's Labor proposing? Labor is proposing a couple of things. So one is already the government has set up a safeguard mechanism, which is for industry, large facilities have a limit on their emissions. And if they exceed that, they need to buy permits from the market to make up for it. We won't call it trading. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so we already have a hidden emissions trading scheme. (laughs) That's right. And Labor is planning to broaden this safeguard mechanism. So it applies to more facilities across the country. That does not apply to the electricity sector. Within the electricity sector, what will Labor do? That's a big question. Probably they will try to pursue the National Energy Guarantee, which was the government's policy, although they didn't go ahead with it in the end. And that has two main arms, right? Yeah. In terms of emissions, there's the emissions part of the National Energy Guarantee, which would put uh, emissions intensity limits in the system. So actually, it's a type of emissions trading scheme as well, but hidden, nicely hidden. (laughs) Also, the National Energy Guarantee has a energy reliability aspect. So that's uh, the uh, keeping the lights on aspect that Peter's so keen on, yeah. Yeah, that's right. The big thing that Labor is doing is requiring cuts each year, right? That sort of regulation that uh, Labor will set a pollution cap for the biggest 250 emitters, and then each year that cap will reduce as needed, and then there'll be some trading within that. It's almost like the worst of the schemes you recommended in that it's regulation. Well, if there was no prospect of trading, then we'd definitely call it regulation. But under their scheme, there is actually the potential to trade. If you over or underperform, you can trade permits. So in the literature, this is called baseline and credit scheme. You have a baseline or a target. If you emit more than that, you need to buy permits off the market. If you emit less than your baseline, you actually generate permits and you can sell them to others. And the key part is that you can buy them from overseas, which apparently saves a lot of money. Is that a good idea? If international offsets are cheaper, permits from overseas are cheaper, then that's right. That makes it easier to reach any emissions reduction target in Australia. The problem with those overseas permits is be careful. Some of them might be high quality, but some of those overseas permits, if they're not genuinely representing one tonne of CO2 for one permit, then they need to be treated cautiously. And also we need to have a monitoring system, even in a market-based mechanism that says, oh yes, I can verify that you've produced this much emission in this amount of time and therefore you've done what your permit says you're allowed to do, right? I mean, companies can lie about how much they've emitted. That's right. For emissions, though, we do have a good system already. We have a national system for monitoring emissions of large emitters. And so that's why our carbon price, which was levied on emissions, it was levied quite well. It worked well. Right, we have right. the data we on knew emissions. The data. Yep, that's right. You multiply that by the price of $23 per tonne CO2, and that's the carbon tax bill. Mm-hmm. You're persuading me. Given that we know what emissions are, we can tax and relax. Our guest on The Economist is Associate Professor Paul Burke from the Crawford School at the Australian National University, one of Australia's leading experts on the economics of energy, transport and the environment. I'm Peter Martin. And I'm Gigi Foster. So, Paul, with all this uncertainty about what's going to be happening in the future and likelihood of changing the mix of energy generation, why is anybody investing at all in power stations? Well, there are two main reasons. One is we do still have the renewable energy target, which will see us reach 20% of our electricity from renewables next year. And that is dragging in new projects, new renewables projects. The second main reason is this is an amazing time in the energy sector. Prices have fallen a lot. And there are a lot of projects going in even without the renewable energy target. 
Uh, this is rooftop projects. They are also under the renewable energy target, but also other projects by large companies, banks and so on that are investing in renewables projects. Why? Renewables are now cheap and it's a good way to reduce electricity bills. That target, by the way, expires in 2020, which uh, when I looked at my watches next year and the coalition hasn't said it will renew that 20% renewable energy target. That's right. That's terminating. For new projects, that's terminating in 2020. What will Labor do? The idea is that the National Energy Guarantee would basically replace the renewable energy target. So that would be the emissions reduction policy for the electricity system. With an aim of? Reducing emissions intensity in the system. By? Uh, well, the parameters are to be set, but for example, by 2030. So, so one of the things I think the person on the street often wonders about with this talk of switching to renewable energy is that, you know, the wind only blows at certain times, the sun only shines during the day, and therefore, you know, we, we may have disruptions in the flow. So is the, you know, the innovation and the advance in technology that you've been speaking about in the renewables energy generation industry, is that also true in terms of figuring out how to store energy overnight or, you know, in some other way, enable renewables to be more reliable in their production of electricity or energy? It's definitely true there's a big challenge there. Demand goes up and down during the day and supply will as well when we have a very large quantity of, of intermittent renewables. So storage is vital and that storage is either via pumped hydro, so that means pumping water up a hill when power is cheap and plentiful and then using it as a hydro power station when it's not. And, and these mm -hmm. are lots of little ones, not only snowy hydro but ones Can where... Can be lots of little ones. Tasmania is a great place for it and, and Tasmania is very keen on it. Snowy 2.0, we already have three schemes in Australia as well. And then, of course, batteries. Batteries are getting cheaper and cheaper and they're coming. Soon we'll be in electric vehicles, there'll be batteries in, in each vehicle. <laughs> um, and if you look at the cost curves, they look a little like solar panels. They're heading south. Are you saying that batteries can actually, in cars, can actually help as part of evening out supply by supplying supply at night? They certainly can. Uh, and the big challenge is for us to have flexible systems. We need flexible prices that encourage consumers to be consuming electricity when it's cheapest. We don't want them to be pumping up their cars at 7pm when they should be watching ABC News. We want them to be pumping them up, charging them up overnight when electricity is cheaper. So, Paul, you, you're part of the ANU Energy Change Institute, which won $10 million in funding from the ANU Grand Challenge Scheme over five years for its project entitled Zero Carbon Energy for the Asia-Pacific. Can you let us know what kind of things are you working on in this project? Well, very excited about this. Australia currently is a superpower, really, in terms of energy exports, coal and natural gas. Number one for coal, number one or number two for liquefied natural gas. But our endowments are fantastic in terms of renewables. The sun, the wind, we have a lot of land space So you're available. saying we have more sun and wind than other countries? Well, than many other countries. We have a big comparative advantage in sun, wind and land. There's the word. <laughs> if, we, if we compare us to South Korea or Japan or Hong Kong or many other countries. Uh, so our project is on how can we develop a new model for Australia so that... We're no longer an exporter of coal and gas. Let's look for new opportunities and more exciting opportunities for the long run. And those are in zero carbon hydrogen, green hydrogen, zero carbon electricity exports, potentially via subsea cable. And also there's the potential in Australia for the manufacture of products using zero carbon energy, for example, metals refining. It sounds as though what you're talking about is actually what we used to call industrial policy, sort of seeing where the, a particular industry is going uh, in terms of the opportunities available for the economy and then creating an incentive scheme using intervention to push the economy in that direction. 
That's right. It's a classic concept from, for example, Mariana Mazzucato, the entrepreneurial state. Mm. Um, at ANU, of course, we're just doing the research that we hope will underpin this transformation, but there's a lot of role for industry policy. And the Australian government at the moment is developing a hydrogen strategy, national hydrogen strategy. So this is behind the rhetoric about coal and so on. The Australian government is working on this. In that van, can you tell us about the Asian Renewable Energy Hub at the northwest of Australia? Yeah, so in northern Australia, there are several projects that are being pursued at the moment. One of the very exciting ones is the Asian Renewable Energy Hub in the Pilbara area. And they're still working towards financial closure in a couple of years if everything goes well. Their goal is to build the world's second largest power station in the Pilbara. This would be 100% wind plus solar and then to produce green hydrogen on site and supply export markets. Export it to Japan or? To Japan, South Korea and others. And to export the electricity? A potential is to lay a subsea cable from the Pilbara to Indonesia. This is a big idea, isn't it? Um, and, and who knows if it will go ahead. A lot of it depends on, on the negotiations and the demand side in that transaction. But it's a 2,000 kilometre distance. It's under a deep sea. But technically and economically, it's doable. It comes down to whether both sides want to do that. So finally, Paul, let's ask you, what is your view on that question that we left hanging earlier? So Australia's economy is only 2.1% of the world economy. We could just do nothing, sit on our hands and wait until everybody else wakes up and cleans up the world. Is, is, yeah, uh, it seems pretty good, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they can fix it up. Should we do that? Well... There are not that many countries like Australia in the world. There are not that many countries in the world. And if other countries like us said the same thing, then we would not be getting very far in terms of avoiding the big risks of catastrophic climate change. Can I put to you, Paul, that that's probably not right in, in my view in, in the case of climate? So it's true there are lots of countries of Australia's size, 2.1% of the world economy, but um, China is big and America is big. The US is big. And it is in their interests to fix up the climate for us. Normally, it does make sense to be, economists call it a free rider, to let the rest of the world fix things up. And we could sit back, couldn't we? I mean, you're right. China and the US are the most important. India is very important as well. And that's why, for example, the agreement between Xi Jinping and Barack Obama when, when Barack Obama was president was so important. Those are the most important countries. Uh, but for Australia, a key thing here is opportunity as well. This is not just something which is going to, to hurt us, that we have so many opportunities for a future greener, cleaner economy. It's true that there are, there are costs along the way, but also pure hard facts that we can make a lot of money in this transition. Uh, if we move ahead of others and we become a major low-cost, zero-carbon producer of hydrogen, then there's a lot of demand out there and we could get into those markets in Japan and South Korea where they have put out strategies and said, they want it. There, there are just a lot of opportunities. The key thing, it comes back down to the simple economic concept of comparative advantage. We might have been hit by a rainbow twice. <laughs> what with the coal, the iron ore, the gas, and now with the solar. What is it about this country? Lucky country. That's why I moved here. <laughs> You've been listening to The Economist with Gigi Foster, Peter Martin. Our guest has been Paul Burke, one of Australia's leading experts on the economics of energy, transport, environment. 
Thank you for joining us, Paul. Thank you very much. We'll put links to the economics of energy and climate on our website, as well as a link to the Asian Renewable Energy Hub. And head to The Economist's website if you'd like to comment on what we've been talking about or have questions about today's show. Alternatively, you can find Peter on his Twitter, which is at one, that's the numeral one, Peter Martin, at one Peter Martin. By the end of this series, Gigi, I want you on no, Twitter too. No, no. <laughs> what are we talking next about week. next week? <laughs> Election overload, the final week, and perhaps the remaining big question, wages. They're barely increasing. Labor has specific proposals. It wants to actually pay childcare workers out of the taxpayer's pocket. It wants to direct the Fair Work Commission to give others, particularly low-paid workers, a good deal more. Should we do those things? Should we increase New Start? Or should we do as the coalition wants and leave it to a strong economy, which it insists will lift wages? I suppose it's the ultimate market mechanism. See you then. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.